0: Today is April 17th. In 1951, the crew of the British submarine Afray is feared dead after going missing off the south coast of England. Two months later, the Afray was found in 300 feet of water 46 miles south of Portland. HMS Afray, a British Amphian-class submarine, was built in the closing stages of the Second World War. She was one of 16 submarines of her class which were originally designed for use in the Pacific Ocean against Japan. Af- Afray was the last Royal Navy submarine to be lost at sea in 1951 with the loss of 75 lives, including four members of the SBS. The Afray set out on a simulated war mission called Exercise Spring Train with a reduced crew of 50 from 61. They were joined by one sergeant, one corporal, and two Marines from the SBS, the Special Boat Service, a commander, and a naval instructor, seven lieutenants in the engineering branch, and 13 sub-lieutenants. The last two groups were undergoing essential submarine officer training. This made her complement 75 in total. Her captain's orders were unusually flexible. The Marines were to be dropped off somewhere along the southwest coast of England. The captain told the Admiralty he had chosen an isolated beach in Cornwall, come ashore, and return under the cover of darkness. The exercise was expected to continue until the affray was due to return to base on April 23rd for essential defect repairs, including a leak in a battery tank. Frey left her home base about 1,600 hours and made normal contact to confirm position, course, speed, etc. at 2,100 hours, and indicated she was pre- preparing to dive, it's, and submerged about 30 miles south of the Isle of Wight at, two, uh, at 2,115, but failed to resurface when it was due at 8,30 off Star Point. The last ship to see her on the surface was the co-class destroyer hms contest returning to portsmouth that evening as they passed each other both vessels piped to the side fray was due to make her sounding surface signal by 900 hours the following day but no such signal was received at 1100 hour submiss Smash one was ordered this signal was dispatched with full priority to all prearranged addresses and authorities concerned with the search and rescue of sunken submarines were immediately brought to standby Constant attempts were made to contact the missing submarine by powerful WT transmitters. At 1,200 hours, Subsmash 2 was ordered, this signal signifying beyond doubt that a fray was in serious difficulties, affecting the instant dispatch of search vessels with supporting rescue craft to the areas designated. A search and rescue operation was launched with 26 ships and submarines and every available aircraft involved. A search area 77 by 20 miles, or 1,540 square miles was monitored as quickly as possible by ships, aircraft, and submarines. Of the many submarines involved in the search, Sea Devil, Sirdar, Scythian, and Ambush all separately reported picking up on their AS listening equipment, hull-tapping, and faint intermittent distorted signals, which were unreadable and assumed to be transmitted from a fray. Continuous sweep searches were made to obtain a precise fix, but without success. Repeatedly, during the next 48 hours, false hopes were raised that a freight had been located. The action of vessels dropping intermittently batches of grenades, which was the accepted emergency signal to a submarine crew to escape, made the location and fix much more difficult to obtain. The last signals were reported by the submarine ambush at 1439 hours on the 18th of April. The code letters, which represent, we are trapped on the bottom, were clearly identified by experienced operators. The chronological sequence of these signals was recorded in the SM Ambush Control Room Log and in the Commanding Officer's official report, which was forwarded to Flag Officer Submarine's Rear Admiral, SM Ra, and subsequently to the Board of Enquiry. All hope of saving life was finally abandoned on the 19th of April. Search vessels were dispersed except for HMS Reclaim, a submarine rescue and diving ship which was ordered to carry on the search until the submarine was found. It was eventually found 7.5 miles northwest of Alderney two months later. In 1964, the Ford Motor Company unveiled its new Mustang model at the New York World's Fair. The Mustang was championed by Ford Division General Manager Lee Iacocca with a suggested retail price of $2,368. The car was a great success and sold over 1 million cars in its first 18 months. And it all began with an inauspicious statement. Ford Division confirmed today that it will introduce a new line of cars this spring, said the Ford press release issued February 6th of 1964. The new line of cars will be called the Mustang, but no further details on the new car line will be revealed until the time of its public introduction. What followed was one of the largest automobile and product launches in history. Officially under development since 1961, the Mustang was introduced through billboards, television specials, commercials, and most importantly, in-person contact. The Mustang's grand debut became, came on April 14th of 1964 for the press and April 17th for the general public. The official unveiling took place at the largest exhibit on the New York World's Fair, the Ford Pavilion, also known as the Wonder Rotunda. At the fair, the Mustang was on display in and around the Wonder Rotunda, and visitors could ride in an all-new Mustang convertible on the Magic Skyway ride. The ride was designed by Walt Disney and his staff to be a fantasy land of the past, present, and future. The convertible would take visitors on a nearly half-mile, 12-minute ride depicting millions of years of life on Earth. The almost 15 million visitors who took the ride were thus able to inspect the Mustang's interior and familiarize themselves with its many available options and accessories. To honor the Mustang's first birthday Ford executives, including Henry Ford II, Lee Iacocca, and Don Frey, returned to the Wonder Rotunda at World's Fairgrounds. This celebration coincided with the festivities across the country to honor the many who accomplishments of the Mustang and its growing community of owners. The Mustang set the industry record for sales during its first year with more than 418,000 units, breaking the previous record set by the Ford Falcon in 1960, and more than doubling the expected sales of 150000 for the Mustang. During the celebration at the Wonder Rotunda, the Mustang received the Tiffany Gold Model for Design Excellence in Industrial Designers Institute's Bronze Medal. The Mustang was the only car honored by Tiffany and one of only four honored by the IDI. The Mustang's astounding success was not just due to its historic grand entrance and marketing campaign, but also the car's affordability, performance, innovative look, and spirit of fun and freedom. The base model of the car began at 2,368, making this first pony car accessible to many drivers. Multiple available options and accessories allowed the Mustang to be upgraded toward sportiness or luxury depending on the owner's desires. This tradition of broad appeal, sportiness and ac- accessibility not only helped the Mustang thrive for the past 50 years plus with only over 10 million Mustangs sold, it has also made it an enduring American icon. And in 2010, George Washington was said to have racked up a $300,000 fine in late fees for failing to return two books to a Manhattan library. Founder of a nation, trouncer of the English, God-fearing family man, all in all, George Washington has enjoyed a pretty decent reputation, until now that is. The hero who crossed the Delaware River may not have been quite so squeaky clean when it comes to borrowing library books. The New York Society Library, the city's only lender of books at the time of Washington's presidency, has revealed that the first American president took out two volumes and pointedly failed to return them. At today's prices, adjusted for inflation, he would face a late fine of $300,000. The library's ledgers show that Washington took out the books on the 5th of October in 1789, some five months into his presidency at the time when New York was still the capital. They were an essay on international affairs called Law of Nations in the 12th volume of a 14 volume collection of debates from the English House of Commons. The ledger simply referred to the Bower as President and Quill Pen and had no return date. Sure enough, when the librarians checked their holdings, they found all 14 volumes of the Commons debates, bar number 12. Under the rules of the library, the books should have been handed back by the 2nd of November that same year, and their Bower and imp- Presumably, his descendants have been liable to fines of a few cents a day ever since. Other prominent borrowers who used the collection did not appear to have the same problems with returning titles. The first Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton, the first Chief Justice, John Jay, and Thomas Jefferson's Vice President, Aaron Burr, are all listed in the register under both borrowing and returning dates. We are not actively pursuing overdue fines, said the head librarian, Mark Bartlett, but we would be very happy if we were able to get the books back. You have been listening to the This Happened Today in History podcast. I thank you for listening and I hope that you have enjoyed learning about historical events from the past. Thank you to the following websites for their information regarding today's topics. ThePeopleHistory.com England Submarine Lost at RoyalMarinesHistory.com 1964 Mustang Unveiled at corporate.ford.com and George Washington Library Late Fees at theguardian.com The music used as the background track for this podcast is Americana created by Kevin McCloud on incompetech.com If you enjoyed this information and would like to hear more please consider subscribing as this will keep the historical events in your feed in the morning for each day I hope you have a great day